Welcome to Fireside with Voxcake, podcast for professional public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of Voxgate.com, which is an online community and service for speakers and event professionals. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. I'm delighted to be speaking to Dylan Sheeman and Sai Pen uh, on the Fireside Fox Game podcast today. Dylan, how are you doing? Good morning. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. It's great to be here. Nice to meet you finally. And thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, so you are one of the, the uh, people who founded a really awesome open source project called the Dojo Toolkit that has been around for quite a long time. But what I wanted to ask you about was, uh, do you remember the very first time that you gave a talk or presentation introducing Dojo? First time introducing Dojo at a conference, yeah. that would probably be 2005 or 2006. Um, I think it was the Ajax Experience, which was a conference at that time. It was kind of the first big JavaScript event. And I, I had given talks of types before, like uh, science conferences when I was in college and university and that sort of stuff. But that was sort of the first time I tried to give a really true technical talk to my peers. And it was, I think it was kind of a, I was in San Francisco somewhere in a hotel. The conference room probably had, you know, 50 or 60 people in it and it was packed. And I think the expectations were a bit different back then for conference talks. They were almost more like training sessions because technology was so new and, the presentation formats were not great. So, you know, looking back at old slides like that, they're probably quite hideous and, and ugly. But I think that's the first Dojo talk I gave. So that was over 12 years ago now. Wow. And, and were you nervous? Were, were, you, were you a good speaker at that stage or were you still finding your feet? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know that I've really get nervous doing conference talks. And I think I'm pretty unique in that regard. Um, the reason for that is I was a grad student at UCLA. And when I was 21, I was a teaching assistant of people who were nearly my age. And I realized pretty quickly I had to be interesting on my feet. And I pretty quickly adopted a speaking style that is one where I, I feel like I'm prepared to talk about anything. So I don't prepare something particularly specific to talk about. Like I'll have slides and I'll have points that I hope to hit on, but I don't have much of a rehearsal process where things are formalized. And I think that makes it a lot easier for me to just have a conversation with the audience and speak about the things I find interesting that day and keep it engaging and fun. It sounds like you may be a little bit lucky in terms of your, your genetic makeup or something, that <laughs> you're one of those people who like doesn't get stressed and you can stay focused. Yeah, I am very relaxed. Um, you could say it's that I've lived in California for part of my life, or you could say that I do a lot of yoga, or just that that's how I am. But yeah, it's, it takes a lot to rattle me. Okay, so there's got to be a talk that went, or a presentation 
that went really wrong. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's got to be the worst one. Uh, the worst, so. Yeah, there, there are a few, but the one that always comes to mind was it was 2009, and there was this conference for spring, one of the Java frameworks in Amsterdam. And it was my first time to Amsterdam, and it was a big conference, and it was the spring. So the weather was just starting to turn nice in Amsterdam. And I think it was a Friday afternoon I was scheduled to speak on pretty much the, one of the last sessions of the conference. And okay. so I walk into a room, and I'm supposed to give a 90-minute talk. And 90 minutes is already, a, I mean, triple what you should ever do as a conference talk, I think. Oh, that's, yeah. that's just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's just how it was. And so I signed up for that. And I walk into a ballroom that can probably seat 500 people. And there are maybe four or five people in the audience. <laughs> and so... Wow, <laughs> for 90 minutes. Yeah, this vast, <laughs> empty room of people. I don't think they were recording a video. like, And so... One of the other Dojo um, early contributors, Peter Higgins, was there and he said, how about if I get you a cider and you have to finish it during your talk? And I thought, well, OK, that's fine. That's that's reasonable. And he proceeds to come back with the largest cider I've ever seen in my life. And so but I had committed to drinking that during the talk. And I wouldn't say the talk went poorly. I would just say that the combination of it being a warm spring day, no one in the audience and drinking a cider in parallel kind of led to probably my least memorable talk ever other than it being interesting and it being such a poor talk in my opinion. And you say there's no video. I don't believe there's a video, which is quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting example of something that's come up in, in, in this podcast series, which is, um, People, this doesn't happen to you, but most people get nervous when they have to give a talk in public. And what I always say to them is that that's good because you can use the adrenaline. It makes you sharper. It makes you more intelligent. Mm -hmm. uh, you give a better talk. Conversely, alcohol <laughs> has the opposite impact. So well, do not plus, I mean, you make an interesting point, which is it's much more enjoyable to speak to a full room than an empty room. Um, and a lot of times it's up to the organizer to find the right room for the right talk and, and balance that. Whether it's a single track conference or a 10 track conference, you want to make sure that your room doesn't feel sparsely populated or else for the speaker, they kind of wonder why they're there. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of energy that you can take from the right audience, right. Uh, which kind of propels you along, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, people really underestimate the value of that sort of group dynamic and energy. And, and especially for the speaker, it's a lot more fun to give a talk to a room of people who are engaged and paying attention and want to be there rather than a room full of people who are looking at their phones before the talk starts and you know don't you don't really know why they're there other than they're there so a good audience really makes a great conference so you've been speaking for a long time since since school but how did you learn is it i mean i'm not going to accept i'm not going to accept the the explanation that you just had it because everybody has it's a skill everybody learns yeah I, I had a few interesting moments. Um, yeah. When I was um, in high school, I was an entrepreneur and I was interviewed on like for the local newspaper, the local television program news and that sort of stuff about a baseball card business that I did, which is sort of a, a trading card business that paid my bills and gave me some spending money for university and stuff like that. And so I was in the... I guess I was just talking to people um, at a fairly early age and 
I never really struggled with presentations. You know, my high school definitely had a lot of opportunities to speak in front of the audience, and I never found that particularly difficult. But I did have a really interesting experience in graduate school, which is that one of our professors challenged us to give the same talk to three different audiences, one being uh, fifth grade students, one being first year university students, and one being faculty and peers, like other graduate students in the department. And the lesson there was to learn how to talk to your audience without assuming they know everything or assuming they know nothing. And so the mistake most people made was assuming that the fifth graders had no clue and sort of talking down to them. And then conversely, assuming that the professors knew everything and that you didn't have to fill in the gaps or tell a story. And the result was you actually kind of needed to talk to all of them roughly the same, but cater how you, you know, where you modulate, how you go into depth, how you come out of that. So you don't want to treat, you know, an inexperienced audience as if they're clueless and you don't want to treat an experienced audience as if they know everything, but you still need to modulate based on the group and how they're responding. And, you know, if they're looking at you, like, I have no idea what you're saying, or if they're looking at you and nodding approval and affirmation and and sort of adjust based on that. So I'd say that, that experience definitely helped me move my game up a couple notches in terms of reading an audience, thinking about how to talk to an audience and, um, really getting into it. And one of the interesting takeaways from that is I tend to like, and obviously this isn't always an option, but I kind of like being speaking at a conference. Like I say, there's a two or three day conference. I kind of like giving one of the first talks or one of the last talks. And the reason for that is for one of the first talks, I can kind of set the, the tone for the event. I can sort of look at what's planned. I can sort of on the fly adapt my talk to, you know, if I know someone else is going to talk about a similar topic or, you know, in more depth about something that's interesting, I can refer to that talk and kind of that just comes naturally. And then, or conversely, at the end of conference, I can kind of listen to what everyone else is talking about and kind of bring it all together into a nice narrative. And, and again, like kind of adapt my talk based on some of the other things I've heard so that I'm not repeating the same talk that's been given four other times at a big event. Yeah, I think that is that is a really nice tip. And it, it's something that I would encourage even first time speakers to do is um, all it takes is is paying a little bit of attention to some of the other speakers and then just maybe checking them or referencing something they said in your own talk. And it's it, great for the audience because it really ties the subject matter together absolutely it's it just helps build an even better event for everyone involved um it helps people make connections in their mind where they're not wondering if this is similar to what that other person was talking about that they heard earlier in the day they know it is because you just told them remember when this person said this it's like that but you know different in this way and i think that's really nice to you know, build bridges and connections in people's minds. And I think that's one of the best ways we learn and think about things. And so I try to support that whenever I can. So, you know, sort of back to your question that sparked this train of thought. I don't know if that came natural or I discovered that at some point, but I know the, the way my mind works is it likes to see relationships between things that might not be obvious to others. And then I really just try to bring those to the forefront. And that's really about respecting your audience. And it, and it sounds like that, that formative experience where you are observing three different audiences and their reactions to different types of talks. Uh, it was really formative in, in directing your thoughts towards the audience. It's, it sounds like 
you start with the audience almost before the, the subject matter of the talk. Well, absolutely. If the audience, two, there's two audiences I'm thinking about there, myself and the audience. If I'm not interested, then the audience isn't yeah. going to be interested, right? But then yeah. beyond that, if I'm not making it interesting for the audience, they're, of course, not going to enjoy it. So the worst thing you can do as a speaker is give a talk you're not interested in, that you're not passionate about, because then why are you the one doing this talk? Um, so there's, there's definitely a lot of that. I remember early in the days of SitePen, we were trying to, maybe in 2000 or 2001, we were trying to raise some seed capital for the business. And it was right at the time of the dot-com crisis. So the world was just falling apart in terms of raising money. And so yeah. my colleague and I went to meet with this person. We would prepared a deck and my colleague was giving the presentation and I was just kind of there to support it at the time. But about halfway through, the investor says, if I see another hockey stick graph where things are right now, they're flat and they're going to look amazing in a year with no justification for it. I think I'm going to lose it. He was kind of joking around with us, but I knew that was like <laughs> the next slide or a couple slides later in our deck. And I could yeah, see my, positive. yeah, of course. And I could see my colleague just, he practiced the presentation so precisely that that's exactly where he was going to go. He wasn't going to adapt at all. And at that point I just kind of took the presentation over and led it in a different direction, not because he was doing a poor job, but I could see he was still going to go through that and wasn't responding to the, to the person. We ended up not taking the money from that investor anyway. We just didn't like the, the terms of the deal, but we didn't make the mistake that would have probably gotten us thrown out or laughed at, you know, because he had just told us, I can't believe people think this way. So, um, you know, a lot of times if you're not responding to your audience, it doesn't matter what you're saying, you're not, you know, going to get the most out of the experience. A lot of our uh, listeners are, are in the startup community and um, would have to pitch investors. What's the difference between that presentation style in, in those little conference rooms where you have like two or three partners versus a conference? Um, like what's transferable and what isn't? It's an interesting question. I would say they're actually almost the same. It's just that you... Um, what you end up talking about is different, right? But you're still trying to be interesting and, um, you know, create some sort of narrative and discussion where you're talking to the investor about what they want to hear. Too many people go in with the mindset, and this is true, I think, in conference talks, in sort of so-called sales discussions and VC pitches, where people go in and the first thing they're trying to do is sell you on their idea. And most people like me immediately resist that and say, I don't want to be sold to. So the joke I used to tell, and maybe I still tell it, I don't know, um, is if you want money from an investor, you ask for advice. If you want advice from an investor, you ask for money. And <laughs> you know, like it's kind of true, right? That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that is, like, yeah. If you want really someone good. to resist you, you know, you tell them what to think. If you want someone to agree with you, you ask them what they think and you see if it works with what you're doing. And it, it's kind of funny, right? It's like the best way to ask a VC for money is to say, well, how should I raise money? And they'll tell you. And if you listen to them and, and are able to give them what they're looking for, well, then you're not wasting anyone's time. Similarly, if you go to an audience and they want to hear a talk about, you know, the technology you're creating or the event that you're running or whatever it is, 
you know, if you're matching with the audience in an interesting way, you've got a great fit. If you're out there like trying to sell your product for the hundredth time that year, and it's a very, you know, dry pitch for why you must use our product and everything else sucks, you're not going to get much of a response, I don't think. Yeah. I have to ask, have you ever been on the other side of the table where you've had people pitching you as an investor? I generally don't invest in things, Um, but I have, I would say, you know, certainly as someone running a company, I certainly have vendors trying to sell us their wares or services or similar things like that. Um, The reason I I don't invest is kind of funny. Um, I think I'm actually a really poor judge of products. Um, I tend to think that I like almost everything and I see the best in almost everyone. And that's not a very selective uh, approach. That makes you a terrible investor. Right, right. (laughs) But I also sort of see how to get the best out of most people when I work with them and, and when I talk with them. But I'm more like the the cheerleader than the person who has to decide, like, this is the company that's going to make it. And so it's actually pretty funny. Years ago, um, this was 2005, I was helping a startup out. Um, The startup's name was Renku, and they were trying to build something to compete with um, Evite. So like a collaborative Mm. way to plan an event. And the idea was Evite is very static. You have to plan it all up front. And everyone either says yes or no. So their idea was like, make something real time where people can say, hey, I want to have dinner. Who wants to hop in? Where should we go? And sort of plan that. And it was kind of cool. And we were building it with Dojo and it was really early in web sockets oh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And it was really neat. And um, our uh, company just, we had like four or five people working there. And so the... Um, LinkedIn at the time was in Palo Alto and they gave us a few cubicles to work out of, which was great. They were, um, their founder was, I think, an early seed investor in this startup. So it was pretty well connected. And we walked by this other set of cubicles every day with this group that didn't look like they were ever working. Like they were never there at the office. They were yet another video startup. And at the time there were like hundreds of video startups and they all looked like not that interesting. And, and this one had a terrible name called YouTube, which is (laughs) pretty funny. right? (laughs) And so, so you were working beside them. Yeah. I was working beside Penn helping this other startup, uh, Renku on this thing and just sort of laughing at this company that looked like they had no future called YouTube. And it, Clearly, I'm not the right person to judge whether a startup's going to succeed or not. So it's it's pretty funny. So a lot of times, our yeah. customers will come to us and say, "Hey, do you think this is a great idea? Is this going to work? And do you like it?" And I'm like, "You don't understand. You don't want me to like your product because it doesn't matter because I'm not going to be able to predict the future yeah. success." But hey, I'll build it for you. But right? Exactly. Yeah. I will do the absolute <laughs> best I can to build what you want. Right. <laughs> but I mean, speaking of building things. Uh, I mean, you you were part of the founding team that built the the Dojo Toolkit. Yes, let's talk about that for a few minutes. Okay, um, because it's it's part of internet history. It's it's been around for a long time. A lot of stuff has been built with it. Yes, tell me the story of Dojo. How did it, how did Dojo happen? So the year was two thousand four, and a number of JavaScript people at the time um, were on this mailing list about the DOM, the Document Object Model, and we were just collaborating on ideas. And um, there was this old library at the time called NetWindows that Alex Russell had started. And Alex and I and a few others got together and said, hey, it'd be great if we did a next generation DHTML framework to sort of make JavaScript a first class citizen for writing software. And 
we started noodling on ideas and it ended up that Alex Russell, David Chancellor, and myself wrote the first blocks of code um, starting in the summer of 2004. And um, we just had a lot of fun doing it. And it quickly grew because we were fairly well connected to most other JavaScript people at the time. There really weren't that many of us. But at the same time, that year, Google Maps came out and Gmail came out. So suddenly the demand for being able to write software with JavaScript was suddenly very big and there really weren't any good solutions and to be fair dojo is not a you know at the time was not a great solution but it was much better than anything else that had been created to that date um and so we just you know ran with it and at the time pretty early on companies like ibm and sun microsystems and aol and a lot of others quick ibm quickly embraced it and so we um quickly found ourselves on this, you know, wild ride of popularity and growth. And I think Alex and I in the first two years probably gave close to a hundred conference talks between us on Dojo alone. So it was a very busy wow. time, you know, getting out there telling people about JavaScript and Dojo and, and whatnot. And um, we've just continued going with it. So, you know, we just released a new complete from the ground up rewrite of Dojo a few months ago, just this year. So it's been around for 14 years, but it's almost now at this point, it's almost a new startup framework again because we've rebooted it from scratch. Um, as the ecosystem changes, sometimes you have to do that. And have you kept the um, the same basic ideas in API, or is it a is it a re is it a sort of a, a rethink? We're still releasing versions of Dojo One. Uh, we just released Dojo okay. 1.14 recently. Some of the paradigms are similar, but a lot of that is the paradigms we had in Dojo became mainstream. They became part of the platform or ecosystem. So. There are modules, but now we're using the built-in ECMAScript modules, or there are um, you know, various event patterns, but a lot of those are built-in uh, promises and asynchronous functions or things we used to have to yeah, implement, but yeah, now they're part of the language, right? So yeah, yeah so it's, it's quite different, um, but it's definitely similar in spirit to what we did for the past you know, decade and a half. You gave, you said, between yourself and Alex, you gave a, over 100 conference talks in one year. Do you think the, the conference talks were, were part of the success of Dojo? Do you, do you think they were instrumental in, in moving it forward? Um, or were they more of an effect than a cause? I definitely think they were a big part of the success um, because Alex in particular and I, we have very different conference styles, but they're both fairly effective. And um, I can think of dozens of companies that were quite large that attended one of our talks and decided this is what they wanted to use and then made that choice. You know, they, they still backed it up with diligence, but they definitely heard about Dojo from us and wanted to, you know, jump on and use it and learn it. It's actually, so, uh, I had one interesting thought there. So yeah. um, in 2007, the year the iPhone was released, Alex and I were invited by Apple to give a talk at WWDC, their worldwide developer conference, without knowing why we were there. Um, you know, we knew this iPhone thing was coming out because they had announced it at their earlier event of the year, but they just invited us to give a talk about JavaScript. And so Apple is quite interesting. They make you rehearse your talk with them countless times. They modify your keynote deck. They tell you where to stand on stage. Like it's, it's the most involved conference talk I've ever prepared for. And as we're leaving the speaker ready room at the Moscone Center in San Francisco, there's this massive 
line or queue to attend some talk. And we're like, wow, well, no one's going to come to our session because there's this great talk that people are waiting for. And we get to the front of the queue and we realize it's for our talk. Oh. <laughs> <We're> like, <laughs> so it turns out like during the opening keynote about the iPhone, um, the one more thing was basically, if you want to learn how to develop apps for the iPhone, there's no native SDK. So go to this talk on JavaScript. And so that was, that, that was <laughs> yeah. So oh, wow. we had, you know, more uh, somewhere between a thousand and 2000 people in this room. It was the biggest talk we'd given to date. It was so bright. We couldn't, you know, the lights were so bright on us. We couldn't see the audience. Um, and it was interesting. Alex, struggled a bit with the opening part of the talk because he was fairly nervous because it had gone from, oh, we're going to give a little talk to maybe 50 people to the whole world at this conference was at this event. So uh, it was an wow. interesting experience, definitely. Wow. Yeah. That is, that's an awesome, that is an awesome experience. Yeah, I mean, Apple, they, originally the apps were supposed to be web apps, weren't they? They were, uh, but they, they were really afraid in that first year to push beyond web standards. There was a big... At that time, everyone sort of disliked Internet Explorer because it had tried to fragment the web with their own APIs. So they thought, well, we'll just figure out all the things web apps need. We'll standardize that in a few months, and then the next version will have that support. And it turned out it took you know nearly a decade for web apps to get all the features they had conceived through a standards body. So, um, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it a bit, but at the same time, they just couldn't move the standards process could not move as fast as the needs for building software on the phone could. So um, I think that's why native took off for a while and why it's still fairly prevalent, but why I think the web has closed most of the gaps now. Do you think the web will win in the end? I mean, do you, do you think an opportunity was missed to make web apps the, the, the dominant way of delivering functionality to mobile? I sort of see it as a spectrum, right? A lot of the apps mm. we use that we think of as native apps still use a web view and still use a lot of JavaScript inside of them. Yeah. So I don't think it has, I sort of think the web has infiltrated everything else rather than, you know, it having to be pure web versus pure native versus, you know, something hybrid. Uh, but I do think in the end of, you know, in the end, proprietary almost always loses to something just because it's difficult for one company to compete with every other company in the world that might have an interest in a technology. Yeah. Always bet on the web. Yes. I used always to give safe. talks, basically never bet against the open web. And it was, this was like in the late, you know, 2008, 2009 era. And basically it was talk to not use flex or silver light, but to use the web. And it proved quite accurate. So maybe I'm good at yeah. predicting that stuff, just not products. <laughs> you're, you're, you're pretty busy though. I mean, so you're, you're still involved heavily in Dojo. You, you, you run SitePen yes. uh, and you run a conference in London from Phoenix, Arizona. Correct. Totally so tell normal, me about that. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a bit. Yeah. So um, I'm really big into community and growing, um, just in meeting people. And I feel that that's what helps us as developers, you know, sort of get out of the shell of just sitting there writing code, ignoring the world every day. And so I was living in London part of the time from 2009 to 2011. And at the time, there was, it's hard to believe, there was no consistent. JavaScript meetup group in London. So I started one with a few other people. Um, the time was called London Ajax. It's now called London Half Stack. Um, the Half Stack sort of is a troll of the conference Full Stack, which is, yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. we're friends with the Full Stack people. So it's just more good banter than anything else. But the idea is it's focused on the user interface side of working with JavaScript. 
And so it's morphed into a monthly meetup plus an annual conference. And uh, this is its fourth year. It's the third um, Friday of each November. It's in a pub. And this conference sort of started out of the idea with the meetup. Usually, like conferences, often the best part of a conference is considered the hallway track, that, that opportunity to talk to your peers. And, you know, you hear good sessions, but then you build on them by talking to your, you know, the people you meet. And similarly with meetups, the talks are great and it's really informative, but usually the best part of the meetup is afterwards when you're in the pub talking about the tech that you're building and, and learning from others. And over time, that's how you really build relationships. So the idea was, well, let's just move the conference to the pub and start there to sort of have the whole day be like a hallway track. So let's not have, you know, super serious talks. Like let's have talks with really inspiring demos or, you know, really interesting visualizations or just something you've never tried or seen before. So last year there was virtual reality talks and speech recognition talks and drones and robots and, um, you know, machine learning type stuff. And, uh, you know, just fun stuff. One individual, he wrote a few poems about JavaScript and one of them was about how he fell out of love with Angular and in love with React. And it was just hilarious and amazing. And so it's kind of become this event where it's like just this really safe place to be creative and hang out for the day and talk about JavaScript. And it ends with a pub quiz in the evening, which is very in my mind, oh, a very British that's, thing. That's, horrible. that's lovely. Yeah. yeah so yeah. You know, one year, one of the questions was, what's the tallest div you can draw in, a, in each of the following browsers? And the only way you would ever know that is if you tried to build a data grid. Because in some browsers, it's like 15 million pixels. And in Chrome, it's like 4 trillion pixels. And so it's just cruel but fun questions. People <laughs> do it in teams. And last year, one of the questions was tabs versus spaces. And then it was just Ooh, list lovely. these JavaScript luminaries like Brendan Ike who created the language and what is their preference and you had to know and like answer oh. it and then the final part of that sequence was well what's the right answer so you had to know like the the person asking the question at the conference you had to know what they thought so it was yeah. just really funny and and good spirited and okay yeah. so you got to tell me which pub in London it's, and when <laughs> it's uh the 16th of November it's at it, the place is called Cafe 1001, but it's in the old Truman Brewery and they've got really good food and a good bar and a good vibe. And um, sometimes they run conferences out of there or concerts or just other events. So it's pretty cool. Okay. Wow. So that's, that's definitely a date for the calendar. One last question. Yes. How do I make money selling baseball cards? <laughs> so um, arbitrage is I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know that at the time, but I have somewhat of an encyclopedic mind. So I could pretty much, remember the buy and sell asking price for every card that mattered at the time. And I could also sort of remember the statistic of every baseball player at the time. So I could pretty much predict which players cards were going to be worth more the next month. Cause they, at the time the prices would come out monthly in this guide called Beckett baseball guide or something like that. And so I would know that like this player's cards were going to go up in value. So I would, buy them all up and then wait a month and then sell them at the next month after they had had some success and the cards had increased in value. Wow. So it's kind of like the movie trading places, maybe kind of just a little less, uh, <laughs> maybe, but yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. Uh, this has uh, been a really, really great talk. Really, really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, best of luck at the conference and, uh, Pen and Dojo, of course. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here.
thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of Fireside with Voxkick. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, one you can also learn. Visit foxgig.com slash newsletter to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.